All right, gang, if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to the very beginning. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Please, Genesis chapter 3, that ought to be pretty easy to find. We'll get there in just a minute. How many of you are dog people? How many of you have dogs? Okay, yeah, a lot of you. I'm a dog person. Uh, if there are any cat people at Grace Community Church, I have some available appointment schedule uh, time this week if you'd like to discuss that. I'll be glad to help you through this dark time in your life. It is ironic to me that in popular culture, we expect to love our animals, our pets, longer with time. The older my girl gets, she just turned nine. Roxy is a 155-pound Italian Mastiff. I love her more, far more than I loved her when she was just a few months old when I got her these nine years ago. But then when it comes to our marriages, in popular culture, it's referenced in our music, in our media. It's almost as though we expect to love our mate less with time. Opposite our pets, who we love more with time, relationships, and especially marriage, tend to plateau with time, or they might even decline. Today, we're going to discuss why. Why is that? What is it that makes marriage plateau over time or even decline? This is the sixth and an eight-part series of messages designed to improve your family dynamic. It's been my hope since the very beginning, and family is something we address every year at Grace Community Church because marriage is very, very important. The Word of God reveals that marriage is very important to our Creator. And if you've never connected the dots between the strength of a marriage or the strength of a home in a culture and society at large, there's mountains of research for you to wade through. The health of a society at whole is built upon the foundation of marriage. So let's begin with that question. It's a big question. It is very relevant because you've seen it before. Maybe you've lived it. Why do relationships plateau or weaken over time? Why do marriages suffer with age? The cultural perception is that marriage, in marriage, we love less with time, not more. We love less with time, not more. Marriage is less satisfying with time, not more satisfying. Today we're going to address the why. I'm going to give you three reasons, three biblical reasons. The Word of God reveals that marriages left on their own without any maintenance will decline, will plateau over time. And the first one comes from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 describes the fall of mankind. God gave man one rule, one order, if you will, Man chose to exercise his free will and go against God. Man ate of the forbidden fruit, disobeyed God, and paid for it. The fall of man that we're about to read about reveals that sin has consequences. In chapter 3, man has already disobeyed God. God has cursed the serpent. God has judged the woman. He's judged the man. And then he says in verse 22 of Genesis 3, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. That is a plural pronoun. It points to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He knows good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and then live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Again, the curse of Genesis chapter 3 reveals that there are consequences to sin. Sin had and has consequences. And those consequences are a very sad result, a sad outcome to what was 
no less than seven times already pronounced as good creation. Seven times God said, that's good, or that's very good. Sin changed everything. God's perfect universe has fallen from its original perfection. And that reveals the first reason that relationships suffer over time. Relationships suffer over time due to the natural conflict in a fallen universe. Is everybody familiar with the term fallen universe? According to Genesis chapter 3, God created a state of perfection. Everything about our universe, everything on planet earth was perfect. Man chose to go his own way as opposed to God's and the universe fell from its original glory, its original perfection. Everybody knows what would happen to this beautiful, red, delicious, juicy apple if I just sat it outside in the parking lot and left it there for a month. It would begin to break down because that is the natural way of a fallen universe. Scientists call it the second law of thermodynamics. Okay, So the theologian refers to a fallen universe. The scientist refers to the second law of thermodynamics, which teaches that every system in our universe is in a state of decline. Everything. You cannot name one thing that exists on planet Earth that is biologically or chemically breaking down with time, excuse me, not breaking down with time, instead getting better. Our bodies are breaking down. Our sun is burning out. It's not firing up. Everything chemically, everything biologically, everything even psychologically, life on planet earth is in a state of decline. I'm not saying it's not beautiful out there, but its beauty can't hold a candle to God's original state of perfection, Genesis 1 and 2, because sin in chapter 3 changed everything. The universe fell from its original glory. So if everything in our world, everything on planet earth is in a state of decline, what makes you think your marriage is any different? What makes you think your marriage is immune from a fallen universe? Raise your hand if you've been to Disney World. I grew up 40 minutes from Disney World in Central Florida. I have been to Disney World 35 times. Every time family from out of state came and stayed with us, we took them to Disney World. Every time the baseball season ended, the coach would take us to Disney World. Basketball season, the coach would take us to Disney World. Disney World was a great place for a date when you were 17 or 18. Spend the whole day with your girl. That was fantastic. But everyone here can understand and relate to the idea that by the time you've been to Disney World 25 times, it's not the same as it was the first one or two, right? The first one or two times you go to Disney World, it's the most magical place on earth. This is incredible. By number 17 or 19 or 26, it's too hot. It's too crowded. I've been in line 55 minutes. I'm ready to punch this idiot. We're going to ride a ride that only lasts seven minutes. A Diet Coke costs $9. Why can't my 35th trip to Disney World be as special as my first trip? The second law of thermodynamics. Biologically, chemically, even psychologically, everything in our world is in a state of decline. The natural direction for all things, all things, is decline. Your marriage is included. That's reason number one. Now I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 139. Go to Psalms chapter 139. David wrote Psalm 139. It's called the Search Me and Know Me Psalm. In Psalm 139, David describes an all-knowing, all-powerful God who created all things about you 
on purpose. You weren't simply an accident of biological evolution. Your creator wired you specifically on purpose. In Psalm 139, read with me verse number 13. David writes, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together. Very important word. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You ever see someone knit? You don't just throw the yarn and the needles in a box and shake it up and out comes a sweater. Not the way that works. Knitting requires painstaking repetition. There is a pattern to the process. David says, I'm not an accident. You knit me together intentionally. There's a pattern inside me when I was in my mother's womb. I praise you, verse 14, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was, here it comes again, woven together in the depths of the earth. Psalm 139 informs the reader that God just didn't determine that Mike would be a tall, kind of slender guy. Somebody else might be a little shorter and more stocky. God didn't necessarily determine only that my eyes would be brown and my hair would be black. It was black. I know you don't believe that. But God also determined what Mike would be like on the inside. My innermost being. God created who Mike is on the inside on purpose. That leads us to reason number two. The reason your relationship can suffer over time is due to the built-in conflict from personality strengths and weaknesses. The reason relationships can suffer or plateau over time is because couples don't know how to deal with the conflict that is created between my internal wiring and your internal wiring. I've got a little book in my office, great book, written by Dr. Robert A. Rome, R-O-H-M. It's called Positive Personality Profiles. In that book, Dr. Rome writes, Research has afforded us the opportunity to conclude that most people have predictable patterns of behavior. What that means is, if I know how God wired you on the inside, even if I don't know you, I can predict things about you because I understand autopilot. Now, most people understand the idea or the concept of an autopilot. According to the mountains of research we have on personality profiles and styles, there are basically four different autopilot settings among the population of the world. In other words, people are wired one of four different ways. You, in your natural state, your airplane wants to fly in a certain direction. You typically marry someone whose airplane wants to fly in a different direction. Everybody understands this concept when it comes to temperament in the animal kingdom. That's why we're not allowed to have a lion as a house pet. You can't have a lion as a house pet because you understand a lion's wiring, his temperament. You have a lion as a house pet, it won't be long. You won't have a dog. You won't have any chickens. You might lose one of your kids. But now, on the other hand, nobody's afraid of a cocker spaniel. Why? Because we understand temperament. Research tells us that there are basically four temperaments. There are four patterns of that knitting that David wrote about in Psalm 139. There are four kinds of people in the world, and follow me, generally we're drawn to someone who's not like us. I have been marrying couples for over 35 years. As part of my premarital counseling, we always discuss personality profiles and types and 
And I have yet to marry two people who share the same personality temperament. We're typically not drawn to someone who's just like us. We're drawn to people who complement us. We're drawn to people who add to us. So, I'm going to introduce you to a term you may never have heard, DISC, D-I-S-C. In our world, in this auditorium, there are high D personality types. Your plane wants to fly in a very specific, pre-wired direction. You, on autopilot, will go in that direction. You're hardwired for it. There's the I, the high I personality type, the high S personality type, and the high C personality type. The DISC personality model represents all four personality types. It is a profiling system that was developed by the Carlson Learning Company about 60 years ago. They are still considered to be the worldwide leader in personal uh, personality profiling. If you ever took the profile, it'd be about 200 questions. It's a little thick booklet. You answer all the questions, and at the end, it reveals how much high D temperament is in you, how much high I temperament is in you, high S and high C. Incidentally, when I take the test, I score highest in the D and the I personality types. Almost no S and C. I married a woman who scores highest in the S and C, and almost no of the D and I. God intentionally wired my airplane to want to go in that direction. It naturally wants to fly to that destination. I married someone who naturally wants to fly in that de destination. And in the beginning, when it's all new, when it's fresh, when we're just getting to know one another, our planes are side by side, they were made for one another, we fail to realize it. It's almost imperceptible. But I'm heading here, and she's heading there. So 15 years in, we've created a lot of distance between the two of us. That's why, again, very much, very much of the time, opposites attract. We see something in someone else that we admire, something that we lack, and we are drawn to it. That is part of God's spectacular design in marriage. Two become one, and together, because of your strengths and my strengths, we're stronger than we ever could have been all by ourselves. But here's the rub. What happens when the opposite person that I was drawn to becomes the source of my frustration? What happens when that beautiful opposite that we had in the beginning becomes a war between our two airplanes? Because her wiring isn't going to change, and my wiring isn't going to change. Her autopilot isn't going to change. It was given her by God. Mine was given me by God. It becomes the source of my conflict, my frustration. So, to discover how you're wired and how those differences are both complementary and are in conflict with one another, I'm going to give you a general idea of how God wired Psalm 139 you, how he knit you together in your mother's womb. I'm going to ask you two questions. Before I do, you need to know, first of all, this is not a right-wrong answer. One is not right, the other is not wrong. I'm going to ask you, which are you most often, this way or that way? Everybody is a little of each. Nobody is all of one and none of the other. So I'm asking, which do you prefer? Which are you in your natural state when you are flying along in autopilot? Which are you most like? And if you can't answer the question for yourself, I guarantee you, your wife who's sitting next to you, she can answer it for you. Trust her. Here's question number one. Are you primarily task-oriented or people-oriented? You in autopilot, are you naturally task-oriented or are you 
people-oriented. Task-oriented people are usually project-minded. They're concerned with form and function. When I was a little boy, because I'm task-oriented, I got in trouble more than a few times for taking things apart, simply because I wanted to see how they work. A lawnmower, for instance. People-oriented people always have time for other people because whatever they've got to do, they can do later. As a task-oriented person, that frustrates me. Because at the end of my day, when I can say, done, 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 that is a good day to a task-oriented person. My wife is not task-oriented. My wife can sit aside whatever we need to do because someone needs to talk. Someone wants some of her time. You see, this is terribly frustrating to a task-oriented person because I've got to get things done. If you're task-oriented, You're motivated by challenge and accomplishment. Generally, you're detail-oriented. If you're people-oriented, maybe you're a little less organized. You're probably not necessarily a list maker, but you enjoy interaction with people. You're more transparent. You're more caring. You're more sharing. Are you task or people? Got it? Here's question number two. Are you outgoing or reserved? Are you outgoing I have no problem taking leadership. Or are you reserved? No, I'll just get a line and push from the back. Are you outgoing? Hey, I'm Mike Holt. I don't know you, never met you before, but I pastor Grace Community Church. Amy and I have to go to these mixers sometimes, you know, like a chamber mixer or some kind of thing. And we don't know anyone or whatever. I'm going to just walk up to people and talk. She's going to stand off to the side and she's going to wait for someone to recognize her. And then she may strike up a conversation. That's because I'm outgoing and she is more reserved. Outgoing people are typically active, optimistic, fast-paced, energetic. Reserved people are far more passive, far more cautious, far more reluctant. I know this many people this much because I'm outgoing. Amy knows this many people this much, see, because she is people-oriented and she's reserved. Now, have you answered both those questions? Here's what we can do. Now we can put the answers to those two questions together in various ways to give some idea of how God's wired you. For instance, look at this next graph. If you are task-oriented and outgoing, we're going to call you the high D. You are the lion, okay? If you are task-oriented and outgoing, I am task-oriented and outgoing. I am high D, the lion. Listen to these D words And if you're a high D, several of these are going to be, oh, that is so you. Here we go. Direct, dominant, decisive, driven, demanding, doer. I have left people's homes before. Maybe I went to someone's house with Amy and we did a little pastoral kind of counseling, trying to help out a family. We get in the car and Amy goes, I cannot believe you said that. said what? To me, it was a direct statement. I'm just trying to get to the heart of the problem. I'm just going to say it. To her, it is so far beyond her comfort zone. Why? Because she's not task-oriented and outgoing. Number two, if you are people-oriented and outgoing, we're going to call you high I, the teddy bear. Listen to these I words, and if you're a teddy bear, your wife's going to go, oh, that's you. Listen to these I words. Inspirational influencing, influenced by others, interactive, 
interchangeable, impressive, interesting. If you're a high eye, man, you're the life of the party. Or you at least like to be around the action. If you're a high eye, you care a lot more about what people think of you than a high D ever will. Here's number three. If you are people-oriented, but you're reserved, you're most likely the high S. That's my wife, the Clydesdale. You tell her I called her a Clydesdale, and I'll deny it. Think about the temperament of a Clydesdale, this big, stable, steady animal. Listen to these S words. Remember, people-oriented but reserved. Stable, steady, sentimental, submissive, shy, status quo. My wife, naturally, because she was woven together by an all-knowing God, came straight out of the box with all those S words. She didn't have to work at it. She is naturally high S. Her plane has a destination, and guess what? Very often it is in direct conflict with mine. And then finally, high C. If you are task-oriented and reserved, we're going to call you the high C. You're the mongoose. Do you know what a mongoose is? Think of a ferret on steroids, okay? To my knowledge, the mongoose is the only mammal on the subcontinent of India that can bring down the mighty king cobra. Do you know why? Because a mongoose, listen to these C words, is naturally cautious, competent, careful, calculating, critical, compliant, convinced. So follow me. You marry a high C... And they're convinced because they've done more reading than you. Deep down, they believe they're smarter than you. But seven years into the marriage, convincing becomes stubbornness, you see? If you're a high C person, you don't want to do it unless you can do it really well because to do it less than average, well, that would be embarrassing. That'd be humiliating. That's how competent high Cs are. You see, a great example, if we go back in history 60 years, JFK, the lion, stood before the entire world and said, we will put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. He turned to his high eye brother, Bobby, who sold it to Congress. The White House pushed it on the American people. All the high-ass, stable, steady people got behind it. We can't let the Soviets beat us. And then they turned to the high sea people at NASA to figure out how to do it without blowing everybody up. Everyone you know alive on planet Earth, falls into one of those four personality types or styles. So where's the rub occur? The rub occurs when your strength is unrestrained and it becomes a weakness. Follow me. Every strength can become a weakness if it's left unchecked. What kind of pastor would I be if I was nothing but demanding? I'd run people over. What kind of husband would I be if I was nothing but dominant? You see, you were attracted to that dominance 10 years ago because he was a take-charge kind of guy. You know what he's turned into today because no one's reeling him in? He's a dictator. See? Every one of your strengths, high D, high I, high S, high C, can quickly turn into a weakness if it's not held in check. I believe God's Holy Spirit in the life of the Christ follower, Galatians chapter 5, using the fruits of the Spirit is what balances all of those tendencies. My wife makes me a more compassionate minister because she's not a D, she's a high S. 
The reason couples fight is because what drew you to him in the first place is now something you've hitched your wagon to, buddy. You're stuck with it. God is not going to unwire him. God is not going to change her autopilot. This is why couples fight. Now, due to the ready-made conflict that rises from unrestrained personality strengths and weaknesses, you and your spouse will almost certainly encounter problems in your marriage. Unless you work to minimize, soften those strengths while validating their strengths. Excuse me, I said that backwards. Unless you work to minimize those weaknesses while validating her strengths, conflict will overtake you. That's why couples fight. There's a third reason. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 again. Now, we've covered this passage in detail in a previous message, so I'm just going to read you one verse. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, six times so far, in the six days of creation, God looked over all he had created and said, That is good. Until he created man by himself, now that's not good. Follow me. I will make, let me find my place. I will make a helper suitable for him. Two great words. Helper literally means completer. Suitable means complementary. Everything God made was good or very good until he created man all by himself. Now it's not so good. So I'm going to create woman, and woman is going to complete man. Woman is complementary to man. The, re- the third reason that couples argue and that relationships plateau with time is due to the ready-made conflict between left-brain men and right-brain women. It's a brain thing. The reason men and women argue is because we are not only different in our personality wiring, we are also very, very different when it comes to how our brain works. You see, a man's brain is like this filing system. I'm not necessarily saying that it's all that organized. I'm saying that it's compartmentalized. A man's brain is all about each individual part of that brain that is necessary for him to function in society. In my brain, I have a work file. I have a family file. I have a money file. I have a dream file. Oh, and ladies, by the way, I also have one of these. This is called a nothing file. So when you ask me as I'm laying there on the couch, scrolling through the television, what you thinking? And I say nothing, this is where I am. Okay? This is a true thing. It actually exists. When I come home and I need to decompress, this is where I go, to my nothing space. I also have a feelings file. Problem is, I don't understand a thing that's in it. A woman's brain is not like this. Not nearly as compartmentalized as a man's brain. A woman's brain is like this. It's like a wad of fiber optic cable. Everything is touching everything else. Information travels through her brain at lightning speeds. It's what makes her better multitaskers than men. You see, the good thing about a man's brain is I can block everything else out and focus on one file. The house can be burning down around me, but I can remain focused on this one task, not my wife. 
my wife can be in the kitchen cooking dinner, scold me for turning the television up or down, tell me to change the channel, scold the dog, do something to take care of the dog, all the while having a phone conversation with one of you. She can do it flawlessly. I cannot because my brain doesn't work this way. Biologically, the male brain is very different from the female brain. Now, despite popular culture's drive for the past 50 years to make us the same, we are not the same, and it's a brain thing. Did you know, for instance, women are bilateral in their thinking, which means they can access both sides of their brain at the same time. That's why sometimes when a woman recalls a painful memory, she goes to the left side of her brain and recalls the memory but then the right side of her brain kicks in and she remembers the feeling. And she might cry while she tells you about it. I can promise you, I could stand here all afternoon, I could tell you about the darkest time of my life, I wouldn't shed one tear. Why? Because I can't do that. I either have to remember or feel. She can do both. She's bilateral in her thinking. She favors the right side of the brain. In the right side of the brain, there are feelings, nurturing the relational part of life. Right-brained women or women favoring the right side of their brain is the reason women are far better mothers than a dad could ever be. A dad can't be a quality mother because he doesn't favor the side of the brain where all that good stuff comes from. They're bilateral. They favor the right side. They find their identity through their relationships. When Amy and I go into one of those gatherings, I stick out my hand. I say, I'm Mike Holt. I pastor Grace Community Church. I've just defined myself by what I do. Amy says, I'm Amy. I'm Mike's wife. I teach your child in Kids Jam. And didn't I teach you at the elementary school in Metter? She's defining herself by who she's close to, who she's connected to. Women are very in touch with their emotions. You ask a woman how she feels and she can tell you. And notice this, women are highly verbal, much more so than men, 25,000 words a day. They've actually studied this in daycare centers. They'll wire up a daycare with audio and video, and they notice something amazing among two and three-year-olds. The little girls are coupling up. They're around a little table. They've got a teddy bear in a high chair. They're serving tea, and they're communicating using words and sentences. Little boys, not so. We've got a truck in our hand. We're oblivious to everybody around us, and we're going, <laughs> explosions and gunshots. You see, the right brain, left brain thing isn't an environmental thing. It is a distinction by birth, planned of God. That's why generally women favor the right and men favor the left. Here's, here's men. We're lateral in our thinking. We access one side at a time. We favor the left side of the brain where language and logic operate. You see, this is why every husband in the auditorium has probably been scolded at one time or another because when you're in an argument with your wife, you get accused of not caring enough. I mean, obviously you don't care. Obviously, this is more important to me than it'll ever be to you. You're not displaying a bit of emotion. Don't you care? No, I don't care. I mean, yes, I do care. Excuse me. Um, I'm just trying to find that feelings folder and figure it out. You see, I don't define myself by who I'm close to. I define myself by what I've accomplished. I'm not in touch with my emotion. 
So please, don't expect a lengthy answer when you ask me how I feel. Fine, good, great, not bad. These are perfectly appropriate responses to that question. And nonverbal, half the words a day. So when I come home at 6 o'clock and I sit down and Amy says, let's talk. I want to talk about your day. I say, I've used up all my words. <laughs> this is why couples fight. These differences are in conflict with one another. Understanding that there are differences are only half the battle. Recognizing how those differences can work in your favor, that's what you want to get to. My wife makes me a better man because she's right-brained. She makes me a more successful person in my work because she's right-brained. Look, one last example and I'll quit. Let's talk about the law of entropy. This is a car battery. This car battery is capable of spinning over a 1,000-horsepower diesel engine, but it can only do it a few times because if you keep starting the car without replenishing the energy, this car battery is going to run down. That's why we go to the store and we buy one of these. This is a battery charger, and we hook it up to the negative and the positive pole, and this attempts to put in the energy that we've taken out. Here's what the law of entropy teaches. It's part of the second law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy says that all systems in our universe, if left unchecked, will run down. Unless new energy is pumped in, an organism will disintegrate. It'll die. Entropy is at work in more areas than physics. I see it at work in marriages all the time. In fact, I'm going to leave you with the same three points I've already made I'm just going to use different words, hoping it'll stick. Here's number one. A marriage will not continue to be good simply because it seemed right at the beginning. A marriage will not continue to be good simply because it seemed so good at the beginning. That goes against every law in physics. Nothing else is getting better with age. What makes you think your marriage is any different. Just because it was so passionate at the beginning doesn't mean you get to ride that wave of energy for the rest of your life. If you don't replenish the energy, the organism will die. Here's number two. What drew you to someone weird, or excuse me, wired? <laughs> what drew you to someone wired differently can become the very thing that drives you apart. What drew you to someone who's wired differently can become the very thing that drives you apart. Again, her autopilot is never going to change. His autopilot is never going to change. God wired her that way. So instead of arguing about how you differ, you ought to be figuring out how to use those differences to your benefit. And then number three, he is not a she and she is not a he. God's design is truly spectacular. It is extraordinary. Together, Male and female, right brain and left, you are better than you could have been all by yourself. Her brain is so good at certain things that my brain simply is not. Put us together, you've really got something. Look, without proper maintenance, your marriage will run down. If left unattended, your relationship will burn out. No matter how hot or bright the flame was at the beginning, if we fail to maintain the relationship, 
it will fizzle out. Why? Because we live in a fallen universe. The natural order of things all around us is down. My personality wiring and your personality wiring are going to be in conflict quite often. And I'm a left-brained man and you're a right-brained woman. Them's fighting words. When you leave here today, I want everybody to understand that there's a keg of gunpowder sitting in your kitchen. And these three reasons lead people to strike the match. Failing to validate personality wiring, right brain thinking, is like striking a match to the gunpowder. When you leave here today, I want you to know that if you don't maintain your relationship, it will fizzle out. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege of getting to talk about things like this, which matter so much to me. Father, I am most grateful for the beautiful woman that you brought into my life 30 years ago. Father, I am so thankful that she is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. She makes me a better man. She makes me a better minister. God, I pray you'd bless her. Bless her. Help me bless her. Help me meet her needs. Help me lead in our home. May each husband and wife in this auditorium realize that if they're not pouring into their marriage, eventually it will suffer. Dismiss us now with your blessing upon each of us, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.